You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Megillat Esther, the book of Esther, which is read on the holiday of Purim. And this book is one of the books of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible. And it's a special one because it does not have anywhere in it the mention of God's name. Megillah means a scroll. Esther is the name of the heroine, but it also means Megale Esther means to reveal that which is hidden. And so it's a book of hiddenness. Who is hidden? The Almighty is hidden. Uh, Esther is hidden. She hides her identity. And um, what does it mean that God is hidden? Not just that God's name is not found in the book, but also that the book presents the unfolding of a story, a plot, with many twists and turns. And one can view this on a political level. One can view this on a deeper level, which is that these are not random events which happen to work in favor of the Jews, that these are a divinely orchestrated unfolding of what we call hidden miracles. There's no splitting of the Red Sea. There's no changing of nature. And yet everything seems to be directed. And so uh, in the Torah, it says, where do we see Esther in the Torah itself? The Esther is a later book. The holiday of Purim is a rabbinic holiday. It says, on that day, I will hide my face. Haster Esther at Panai. So we wear costumes on Purim as well uh, to play off this theme of hiddenness and revealing that which is hidden. So we hope to be able to uh, reveal the deeper level of what is going on in our story. Now, uh, the story is also a story of great bravery. It's also a story of a heroine. After all, it's named after Esther, and, um, and she is the primary person who will bring about the salvation of the Jewish people. So let's get right to it. The opening scene is placed in Shushan, the capital of ancient Persia. It says that the king Ahasuerus reigned from Hodu to Kush, from India to Africa, 127 provinces. And this was the first empire in the ancient Middle East that spanned the entire civilized world, except for Egypt. And so in his great power, he convened a party, a mishte, a gathering in his capital, which lasted 180 days. Yes, 180-day party. Why? Because of the great span of his empire, undoubtedly he wanted to consolidate his, uh, his uh, allies and people from many different languages and cultures. It's emphasized throughout the Megillah. And so they are brought to... Shushan to the capital to spend six months there together. The last week of this party is open to everyone, open to all the people. And during this party, he decides he wants his beautiful wife Vashti to come out in front of all the guests. And really, he's parading her around. And she, according to the rabbis, was the daughter of, uh, came from a line of kings. Ahasuerus did not, and we'll see that he'll be very much manipulated by his court, uh, whether he's actually a puppet figure or not. 
one could debate, but certainly not a strong ruler and a, dev- and a decisive person. So when she refuses, he's very upset, but he doesn't act yet. And his advisors tell him, sir, you cannot let this go unanswered. Otherwise, none of the women will listen to their husbands. And so he has her deposed, and it says his anger uh, was assuaged. But after that, he woke up and he realized that he is alone. And so they convened a beauty pageant to gather all of the young women from Shushan and to see who would find favor in the king's eyes. Now we have the introduction of our hero and our heroine. And this is none other than Mordechai, uh, who calls Ish Yimini. He's a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. But in the Megillah, we will see that the, the, the Jewish people are called Yehudim, Jews, for the first time. Why? Because after the 10 tribes were exiled, essentially there were mainly only the tribe of Judah and Benjamin left over, and Judah was the prominent one, so they became known as Yehudim. And it says that he uh, took care of Hadassah, who, was, uh, who is Esther. She has two names. And some speculate whether Esther is not from Astarte as well, which is a Persian name referring to one of the Persian divinities. And this question is a very interesting one, which is how assimilated were the Jews? According to one opinion in the Talmud, it asks, why did this terrible decree that's going to come on the Jews be be declared? And it says, because they participated in the feast of Ahasuerus. Now, in the feast, it says everything was according to the law, meaning there was kosher food. No one was forced. But it also said there were many different vessels. And according to the rabbis, the vessels of the temple in Jerusalem were used in this banquet. Why? Because Ahasuerus knew of Jeremiah's prophecy that the Jewish people would be redeemed after 70 years. And he had counted 70 years, nothing had happened, and he wanted to embarrass the Jews. He didn't realize that there were two waves of exile and the count started at the second wave. But um, that was his intent. And so the Talmud views very critically that Jews would have attended this banquet, which in essence celebrated their downfall and in a sense, the lack of power of the God of Israel. And so um, we see that the rabbis viewed this very unfavorably. The other reason it says that this terrible decree is going to come upon them by Haman is because they bowed down to idols. Now, did they willingly do so? We shall see. It wasn't something obvious. Uh, Haman put an idol around his neck and got the Jews to bow down, and Mordechai refused. We'll come to that in a little bit. But it says that Mordechai was amongst those who were exiled from Jerusalem, and he uh, Esther Hadassah's family had died. And uh, by the way, Mordechai's name could have come from Marduk, also a Persian deity. Or it could be a Mardechi, the rabbis undersee a deeper level, which is that uh, the incense in the temple, he was uh, hinted at in his name. So it says that Esther's parents had died. 
and Mordechai raised her. She was his cousin. And then it says she was she was like a daughter to him. But the rabbis understand a deeper level that she also uh, was married to him. And uh, there was a disagreement about this. But in any case, we see a strong family connection. And so uh, in the beauty contest, when Esther is taken uh, to be uh, interviewed, to be paraded, to be brought into this harem of the king, uh, Mordechai told her not to reveal her identity. And it's not clear why. Could it have been because it might make it worse for her with anti-Semitism? But it says that she was forcibly uh, taken. She, of course, would not have willingly done this. And Mordechai would go by the window of her prison cell. Uh, Essentially, that's what it was. So that she could at least see him and maintain her connection to her Judaism. Now, we're told that when it was her turn to come before the king, Esther, the daughter of Avichail, uh, the niece of Mordechai, that uh, when it was her turn to come in front of the king, this was in the seventh year of his reign, she found favor before him, and he made a special party. He declared, made a special declaration, and in essence, she became the queen. And... um, And this is where she was stuck, which in itself is a tragic uh, painting of what happened to this young Jewish girl. Now, the Megillah will take an aside, a sidebar. And these sidebars we're going to see at first, they seem puzzling. Why is it telling us this? But then what we're going to see is that each sidebar, each piece of information is another piece in the puzzle, which is going to lead to the salvation of the Jewish people. And so it says Mordechai was sitting by the gates, which meant he had a power, position of prominence. He was one of the judges. He overheard two court guards plotting to assassinate the king. He told Esther who reported it, and the plot was foiled. However, there was an unfortunate development which is that Haman, who the Megillah refers to as the Agagi, the Agagite, was promoted above all the other princes. He became second to the king, and all of the court and all of the people were forced to bow down in front of him when he walked in the street. And Haman was very miffed by this. When finally came out, they asked him why he didn't bow after many days of not bowing. It was came out that it was because he was a Yehudi. Haman was furious. He goes to the king. He makes a deal. He says to the king, there's a people who are dispersed amongst the nation, right? They're all over the place, who are, um, don't speak, uh, don't follow the king's laws, right? We have Jewish law that we follow, but it doesn't mean we're not loyal. These are the classic anti-Semitic traps. And he says, and the king should not put up with this. And he offered 10 uh, portions, 10 kikars of silver, uh, if he would be given permission to do whatever he wished with them. And the king says, keep your money and do whatever you want. 
And so here we have the two models of anti-Semitism. We have Haman, the uh, ideological uh, anti-Semite full of evil and hatred. And Agag, who was he? He was the descendant of Amalek, the people who attacked the Jews leaving Egypt. Why? Just because God had shown favor for them. And so this represents evil, which will attack anything that stands for that which is godly, especially God's people. And uh, Ahasuerus is the passive anti-Semite. He is the one who will stand by or even go along once the other one initiates it. And it's very important that now we know Mordechai was Ishimini because uh, Agagite, the, the, uh, uh, the Amalek king, lived in the times of King Shaul. The prophet Samuel had told Shaul to fight Amalek, to destroy Amalek. They were the Nazis of the ancient Near East and to kill the king. And Saul spared the king uh, and lost his own throne because of it. Samuel wound up killing Agag. But many of the mystical uh, teachers view that uh, Mordechai was the perhaps the descendant and perhaps even the reincarnation of Saul, and he will rectify the mistake that Saul has made. He will take on Amalek. And so we ask, why did Mordechai refuse to bow down to Haman? Now, we mentioned that according to one opinion in the Talmud, he had an idol around his neck, in which case it would be forbidden. And the Jewish people themselves uh, were, would have had to give up their lives rather than bow down to such an idol, which Mordechai was prepared to do. But according to the simple meaning of the Megillah, there wasn't necessarily an idol, yet he still refused. How do we understand that? And one way to understand it is that Mordechai knew Haman was a Malek. Mordechai knew eventually Haman would go after him. And so he precipitated the confrontation. And people who are astute know, if you get someone like Haman to react you're more in control, even if it looks like you're more vulnerable or you're more in danger, but you're more in control. And so Mordechai precipitated this. And so King took off his ring. He gave it to Haman. Haman, uh, in order to set his decree, he drew lots. He randomly chose numbers to find out when he would attack the Jews. And what are the lots called? Pur. And that's where Purim comes from. Why the lots? Because Haman Amalek represents the belief in coincidence. Nothing matters. Everything is equal. There's no divine direction. So I might as well just pick a number out of a hat, which politically didn't make sense because the number he picked was 11. The attack would not be until 11 months later in the month of Adar. This story now is unfolding in the month of Nisan during the Passover time. So the Jews would have 11 months to figure out what to do, but Haman didn't matter. He was showing nothing meant anything. And so what is Mordechai going to do? The Jewish people hear about this decree to destroy them by the second in command, the kings agreeing to it. Mordechai tears his garments. He puts on sackcloth. He acts like a mourner and he goes by the palace and Esther sees him from the window. She sends word. She is 
uh, distraught, uh, sends him clothes, uh, according to some, so that he could then enter the palace and tell her what was going on. And he sends word and tells her what has happened. Notice, uh, we see how sheltered she was all of this time. And remember, five years had gone by since she first was taken into the palace. This is the 12th year of the king's reign now. And she must have felt very disconnected from her people, even though Mordechai tried to maintain this connection. So he says to her, you have to go into the king. He is activating his sleeper cell. Remember, they don't know she's Jewish. And he's had her there in the palace. And how does she answer? She says that... It's not so simple, Mordechai. If you go into the king without being summoned and he doesn't extend his staff to listen to your request, you're killed. And I have not been in for 30 days. Now, what does that mean? It could mean that I haven't been in for a while. He hasn't seen me. I haven't been in his face and it it won't be favorable to me. It could also mean that I haven't been in for a while. Eventually he'll call me in And then maybe we can take this up. But either way, she's scared. Either way, she's hesitant. And Mordechai answers her very strongly. And he has a four-part answer. First, he says, don't think that you will be saved from amongst all the Jews here in the palace. They'll get to you eventually. And he says, if you don't do this, Salvation will come to the Jewish people from another place. We are going to be saved by the Almighty one way or another. Do you want to be part of it? Third, he says, if you don't do this, you and your father's house will perish. Which means that even if you don't perish physically, you'll perish spiritually. You'll have cut yourself off from the Jewish people. And the fourth argument is the most Dramatic, the most poignant, and the most powerful. He tells her, Esther, why do you think you have been brought to this place, if not for this moment? And of course, within there is saying, why do you think God brought you here? Why don't you think you've had this crazy life, Jewish late teenage girl, brought into the palace, becomes the queen one of these arguments gets through to her because she does a dramatic turnaround. She takes her fate in her own hands and the fate of the Jewish people. She rises to the occasion and she says, please mobilize the Jews. Fast from me for three days, two days up to the third, 48 hours, and pray and I will go into the king. And if I perish, so I will perish. In other words, she's placing her trust in the Almighty. She's accepting whatever will happen. And she realizes that this is her task, that she needs to do this for her people. But what's amazing is she must have uh, matured in some ways in the palace because she doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to go right in and ask him. She comes up with an entire plan. And we'll see her plan unfolding. We'll see how astute it was. And we'll see that also in this plan will allow the other elements 
to go in her favor to unroll, to unfold. And the first thing is she goes into the king. Sure enough, he extends his scepter. Not only that, he's happy to see her. Esther, my dear, what can I do for you up to the half of the kingdom, he says. And what does she ask for? She says, I would like to have lunch with you and Haman. Let's have a mishte, which is like a drinking party, uh, a, uh, a drinking lunch. And uh, he says, of course, fine. So they convene the lunch. He gets Haman. They're sitting there. My dear, what would you like up to half the kingdom? And she says, I'd like to do this again tomorrow. Let's have a lunch again, a party again with Haman. And then I'll ask you. And then you, and then I will do what you ask. What is she doing? Remember, she has been in the harem with the eunuchs who supervise it. She's never been exposed to men who might be competitors to Ahasuerus. Could she be working on his jealousy? Could the king start asking, why does she want me and Haman? So this might be one of the elements. So Haman goes home, he's riding high, he's in with the queen, now as well as the king, and there is Mordechai not bowing down, and he's even more furious. And when he gets home, his wife, his family, his cronies are there, and he says, nothing is worth it to me, all of this is nothing to me, if that Mordechai is still sitting there by the gate, meaning also in a position of power and sitting, not stand, not bowing. So his family, his advisors tell him, make a gallows, 50 amot, 70 feet high in, he must have had a grand estate, and we're going to hang Mordechai there. In other words, we're not going to wait 11 months. Now, the next scene is another sidebar. And another sidebar, which will set up all of the pieces of the puzzle to bring down Haman. And it says the king could not sleep. Now, remember we said that the Megillah does not mention God's name directly. The only book in the Hebrew Bible that does not do so. But the Vilna Gaon, the great Rabbi Eliyahu Vilna of the late 18th century, tells us whenever it says the king... It can also mean the king of kings, if it doesn't say King Ahasuerus. So it says the king could not sleep that night. What does that mean? It means that God knows of the plan against Mordechai. And now the events will start to change. The tide will turn. But Ahasuerus also, the real king, could not sleep. He had insomnia. So what does a king do when he can't sleep? Bring me the annals of my great rule, right? He feeds his ego and see all the things, great things I've done. So they're reading through what they open up and what do they come across? The story of Mordechai saving the king, reporting the assassins. And he says, tell me, has any, was anything done to reward him? And of course, a great king has to give a great reward to someone who would save them to justify his own greatness or to reinforce his own greatness. And they say, no, sir, not that we know. Ah, I'm going to do something. Right at that moment, by now it was morning, someone's at the door, there's Haman coming to ask permission to hang Mordechai. And he sees Haman, bring him in, Haman, just the man I was looking for. Tell me, 
If there was something you, someone you wanted, who you really liked, who you wanted to give a special recognition to, what would you do for them? And the Megillah tells us, Haman, of course, thought this was talking about him, right? He also had a very healthy ego. I would put them on the king's horse, dress them in the king's clothes, put on the king's crown. And the king says, great idea. That's exactly what I'm going to do for Mordechai. And Haman's face dropped. And the king said, you're going to go out and lead him around the city and do this for Mordechai. And Haman uh, passes by Mordechai again. He is dejected. He gets home. And he tells his wife and his cronies what happened. And they tell him something very powerful. They say, if Mordechai is from the descendants of the Yehudim, from the Jews, and you're beginning to fall before him, you will not prevail. In other words, they understood that the God of Israel was now protecting the Jews. And against that, nothing can work. They knew this. They understood it. And so uh, this is their advice. But of course, Haman will not listen to them. He is consumed by his rage. Once again, Mordechai got him to react. And right as they're talking, the messenger comes to bring him to the next party. So they go into the next party, and here is Esther's move. The king, again, what, honey, can I do for you up to half the kingdom? And she says, if you will answer my question, you will address uh, me to save me and my people for a question for them. And here's my request. Me and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed. And if we would have been sold as slaves, I would have been silent. But this enemy, she doesn't name him, is not looking, is, doesn't care about hurting the king. In other words, her argument is, someone wants to destroy the Jews. And if they had your good intentions in mind, they would have enslaved them and gotten something out of them, not killed them. So she angles it that someone's working against the king's interests. And he says, famous Purim song, who is this man? And she says, Haman, the Agagi, the evil one, is plotting to do this. So the king knew about it, but he sees it from a different angle. He is befuddled and once again, uh, indecisive, he walks out into the garden to try and sort all this out in his head. Haman runs towards Esther, starts begging her, leaning towards her. The king walks back in. Haman trips and falls on top of her. And the king, seeing this, says, you would also now want to take my queen in my own house? Remember, Esther played off his jealousy. And so here, Harvana, one of his advisors, said, sire, uh, Haman has a gallows, 50 uh, Amot high, which he prepared for Mordechai, which you can hang him upon. 
And the king, sure enough, says, hang him on the gallows. So they hang him on the very gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordechai, and it made Haman look even worse. And it says the king's anger was subsided. And once again, the king of kings as well. So it says that the king gave Esther the house of Haman, his entire property, and Mordechai came before the king because Esther told him uh, how important he was. And to Mordechai, he gave Haman's uh, power. He took the ring of Haman and gave it to Mordechai, and Esther placed Mordechai over Haman's estate. And then Esther makes her second move. She asked him again. She bows down before him and, and begs her to, begs him to uh, turn around the plot against the Jews, to rescind the decree that had been set up by Haman. And he tells her, he tells her, first of all, stand up. Uh, he tells her, I've given Haman's house to you and I've hung uh, him, but I cannot rescind a king's decree. But what I can do is I will create a new decree and endorse that the Jews will be allowed to defend themselves instead of being attacked, or if they are attacked. And so the decree was sent out a month, couple of months later to all of the provinces and all the languages, allowing the Jews on the 13th of Adar to defend themselves against their enemies. And it says Mordechai went out in kingly garments and the city of... Uh, the city of Shushan was in full of joy. And um, there were even, it says, those who rejoiced with them, many of the people who were mityahadim, were either allies of the Jews or even converted for fear of what was going on. And it says now, uh, second to last chapter is the payback. And on the 12th of Adar, it says, everything was turned around. The enemies who were going to attack the Jews uh, were attacked themselves. And the Jews killed in Shushan 500 people, including the 10 sons of Haman, who were hung as well on gallows. And the second day, there was still fighting. And another 300 were killed. It says in the whole kingdom, Thousands were killed, tens of thousands by the Jews. And this was the Jews attacking the Hamanites who were the Nazi party of ancient Persia because they knew even though their leader was killed, they would not stop. And it, so it says in uh, most of Persia on the 14th of Adar, they rested, they had conquered their enemies and the capital took one extra day. And those days were established as days of joy and rejoicing the 14th of Adar. And Mordechai sent word to all the Jews in all the provinces that they should set, establish these days of rejoicing. So in Purim, we're ha we have a suda, a festive meal with eating and drinking. And it says also, they sent gifts to their friends. They were so happy. That's another one of the mitzvot. And when they established the holiday, they established, Esther wrote down uh, the events, and they were 
uh, she retold the events and then written down. The book of Esther was written by Esther and Mordechai. And that these words should be established. The Megillah is read every year. And it says also that they should be days where we give uh, charity to the poor and take care of those who don't have uh, the means to celebrate as well. And so it says that the Jews accepted upon themselves this feast, this celebration for them and all of their descendants, and that it should be observed for all time. And the postscript was that these words were also written in the books of Madayu Pras, although we do not have an account of it from their history. But we do know that uh, King Cyrus, right before the story, had given the Jews permission to build the temple. Uh, that permission had been rescinded. And the next generation, Darius, who is the son of Esther, will reissue the permission for the Jews to return to Israel and for the temple to be rebuilt. So the Purim story is a story of redemption for the Jewish people against the plot to destroy them. But it'll also be a story of the redemption, which will lead to the end of the Babylonian exile. Now, tragically, uh, Esther seems to go back to Ahasuerus. She did not have much choice, but he will die shortly later. And this story is a powerful lesson. It's a unique book and it's a unique story because the Jewish people are no longer, we no longer live in a world of open miracles, but it's telling us we do live in a world of hidden miracles. If we will only unveil that which is hidden, megale hester, to reveal that which is hidden, and to see God's hand in the events in the world as they unfold, and the events in our lives when exactly the right person is there at the right time, when things unfold in our favor, and to not view this as accident or happenstance, but to view this as part of the divine plan which might be hidden, but which can be revealed to us. And so it's a holiday of rejoicing and a holiday of fun, but it's also considered to be a deeply spiritual holiday. Uh, Yom Kippur is called Kippurim, like Purim. So it's a day where we encounter the Almighty in our lives through rejoicing, through happiness, through parties, through uh, uplifting spirit through even dressing up in costumes and drinking. But really, there's a deep message for us in our lives. And so this Purim, we should live that message, internalize it, and take it to heart, and uh, also uh, realize that joy is central in what it means to be a Jew. And we'll be talking more about that in our next podcast about the holiday of Purim. Have a happy Purim Tech.